This episode is sponsored by Anchor.fm. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. So let me explain. Basically, it's free. Secondly, there's creation tools that allow you to record and also edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. And after which, Anchor will automatically distribute your podcast for you. So it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other platforms. You can also make money from your podcast with literally no minimum listenership. So it's everything you basically need in a podcast in one place. So go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started today. Welcome to the Naked Dialogue Podcast. This is episode 14. I'm here with Abraham. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Naked Dialogue. This is my nth recurrence on it. And as always, I'm very excited to be here. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Intentionality as a door to display. So, intentionality is almost fundamental to the conscious state, the conscious human state. So, what do you have to say about that? Clarify whether you're talking about (laughs) phenomenological intentionality or not. I mean, yeah, you can put it that way. So, Mm -hmm. the idea that consciousness is always consciousness of something. That there is an object in front of you towards which you can direct your attention and gain some degree of apprehension of the object. That is intentionality. Mm-hmm. Or do you mean it as in there's always a free agent within the psyche determining every action regardless if you're not conscious of it? The former. Okay. So, mm-hmm. <clears throat> I mean, there is some degree of overlap between the two. So if we think of a phenomenological intentionality as being pure thought in the sense that attention redirecting itself it it would mean that we are reaching some sort of essence of the object, meaning that we're we're understanding something so uh, your, your idea of intentionality being everywhere might be true in that we are directly apprehending many things all the time I think the more interesting question here is whether we're consciously or unconsciously apprehending these things. Freud asserted, and this is a radical innovation in psychoanalysis compared to any other philosophy, that thought is unconscious. So this is separate from believing in the unconscious or not. It's simply saying that as a dynamic thought is an unconscious psychical movement. So this is where I would bring in perhaps an intentionality of the other, you can even call it that way, which is really the way that language runs through us rather than us wielding language to our preferred manifestation of it. So there's something in Heideggerian phenomenology called uh, chatter, and this is what he reduces language and speech to be, which is that you're not necessarily deciding on what you're talking about. You're simply speaking, and this chatter is language in itself because you are not controlling it. 
And I think this exemplifies very well what Freud means by thought being unconscious, because thought and language are parallel. Both of them are fundamentally syntactical. So yeah, redirected to the omnipresence or ubiquity of intentionality. What do you mean by that? So intentionality is like personality. Or intentionality is a part of personality. Or intentionality goes towards personality. Okay. So the way personality is a mask in Jungian sense, you know, towards the external immediate surroundings, intentionality is the, you know, like, precursor towards any kind of, any kind of thought process that comes out of that. Okay. So, what are you saying here, that the persona is determined by the intentionality, or that, or the other way around? Is there another type of intentionality in the persona? No, persona, intentionality is a precursor to persona. It's the catalyst. Okay, so what object are you dealing with outside of the world? The external stimuli, everything which is external. Okay, so... Probably human consciousness, the other human consciousness. <laughs> no, that, that's a trippy thought. So, yeah. the reason why I'm having trouble understanding you is because you're mm-hmm. using intentionality in a very distinct way that it tends to be used. Because yeah, because I'm drawing parallels between a philosophical and a psychological term. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I tend to do that a lot. Sometimes I can draw parallels between two different, you know, components of two different psychologies or two different philosophies and still be able to make a lot of sense. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. I mean, that's why models are so effective and. Mm-hmm. The, the cliche that a philosophy and psychology go hand in hand mm-hmm. because they do there's the difficulty of cognition that you always have to account for in philosophy mm-hmm. so psychology as models help a lot mm-hmm. what do you think about the ego consciousness that it's a useless path for uh, psychoanalysis and it might be for psychology but I don't really think in modern-day psychological terms. If anything, I, I think in psychoanalytic terms in regards to the psyche and any psychotherapeutic mm-hmm. intention. <clears throat> so, I mean, uh, in regards to history, mm-hmm. what occurs after Freud is that essentially people forget of the importance of the unconscious and of the complexity of the subject as having memory traces that interact between each other within him or her. So the reason why this is regarded is because the discourse is displaced onto an eco-psychology perspective in which the ego now is what matters instead of the unconscious that, of course, is forming the ego in some way or another, or is always subjected, or the ego is always subjected to the unconscious. So... Lacan specifically notices this and, and says, guys, you know, you're not reading Freud. Mm-hmm. You're, you're po- post-Freudians and haven't even 
understood him. You've forgotten Freud. Mm -hmm. And so he turns to Freud or returns to Freud. And this is what's called the return to Freud by Lacan. So Lacan obsessively rereads Freud and through his structuralist inclination decides to make sense out of Freud using structural anthropology, structural linguistics, but completely transforming the original structure of Saussure and other structural discoveries, including his own, which are entirely new using topology or logic, predicative logic. Mm -hmm. So fundamentally, what the hell is ego consciousness? Like it's, it's a fiction and it's even more of a fiction than the unconscious. This is the, the, the dramatic truth. The ego is not the master in his own house. So why are we studying the ego instead of the invisible master? This is the, the argument of modern day Lacanian psychoanalysis, which I ascribe to. Maybe, maybe, psychology. Yeah, maybe the rationale is that through understanding ego consciousness, which is an abstract term, you can understand a bit of the unconscious and navigate unconscious through the understanding of ego consciousness. Yeah, totally. Yeah, because I mean, ego yeah. is more easy to decipher, more or less, than the unconscious. So the first attempt at understanding a analysand or a patient or subject or whatever is that you try to crack down the ego and then navigate through the unconscious through the understanding of the ego right so i would say that studying the ego alone is going to give you very little information compared to if you were to study the unconscious but that's why it is the first move it's okay. the primary it's a preliminary yeah to, to leave it aside once you've cracked yeah. it. So what are you cracking exactly? What what end conclusion do you reach? What what do you like what is meant by ego here, really? Is it a DSM five psychopathologization or is it a Kleinian this is where you got trauma? What is it? Yeah, it's just definitely psychodynamic in the sense that it traces back to the childhood somewhat but not really but at the same time it is like at first when you meet the subject you see the persona which is a mask but through you know a long discussion or a long back and forth dialogue you try to understand the basic structure of their whole psyche and so the basic element being the ego I don't agree there Mm -hmm. this is one step removed from a more fundamental area of study which is the unconscious yeah but the that's why the ego is the, the first move that's why first when you just understand the ego then you're already on way to understanding the unconscious from my point of view you can dispense with the ego there's not much thought to give it but it's already there like you can just yeah, navigate so it becomes it. obvious yeah right so it's known okay so what is why the argument of step one figure out the ego because if you're putting it in a structure then you'll have to put down ego because ego is one of the most fundamental themes I don't know if I entirely agree and you're not giving me any examples you try to understand a person's ego and super ego super ego conflicts like not conflicts but like super give me specific ego. examples 
like defense mechanisms. Okay. So you'll try to understand what kind of. I, re I reduce the idea of persona to defense to ego defense mechanisms. Yeah, then there you have it. So you, it's it's already obvious. It's known, so it's it's just there, and then, then you see a bit of the persona, which is the mask, which is there already, and then you go towards the unconscious. I mean, okay. it's not like a like a fundamental way to do this therapy or whatever, but it's just a way. It's a common way, probably. Yeah. I think that it's a useless enterprise, honestly, because I mean, we, we see it in the oceans model. Mm -hmm. It is the most effective way of tracking a personality mm -hmm. and it doesn't even do it through subjective measures. Rather, it does it through behavioral representations. So mm -hmm. someone who is high in openness mm -hmm. is measured in regards to how often they go ahead and, and search for new experiences not mm -hmm. based on an intrinsic quality of the subject. It's how the subject is represented externally. And believe it or not, the oceans model is the most effective way of understanding one's personality. At mm -hmm. least, I mean, statistically, to me, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, so the reason why I think that you can dispense of ego psychology mm -hmm. and your question of what is ego consciousness? It's the same as asking, you know, what is the value of ego psychology or how do you tackle the idea of the ego? Well, first of all, you dispense of it. You understand that it's just, you know, it's, it's a name we give to a refraction of the subject, but that there are many refractions of the subject. Technically, you can't differentiate in Jungian psychology, and correct me if I'm wrong, between the ego and personas, or maybe you can't. Uh, what I have understood is that there's a, a self apart from the ego and that this is more fundamental and it's more related to the soul and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but what I understand is that the ego is simply a, the, the holding point. It's the seeming unity of, of the subject, which might be refracted into personas and, and stuff. So, I mean, yeah, Jung is the first one to say that in order to successfully psychodevelop, mm -hmm. you need to individuate your parts. And this is bringing together the archetypes that need to be brought, bringing balance between opposites in a very alchemical way, in his Coincidencia Oppositorum, which is a slogan, mm -hmm. the coincidence of opposites. So you can say that individuation is the amalgamation of all the elements of the psyche yes to some extent it's self-actualization yeah uh, without a doubt it's a self-actualization but mm -hmm. to what extent can you unify the psyche this is also the question and what the hell do you mean by and that's psyche? why it's a lifetime process right it's mm -hmm. an ideal it's asymptotic mm -hmm. i i don't know if you can reach it maybe you can maybe the the gurus and yogis have done it i'm not sure mm -hmm. the case is that there is a psyche apparently you know we mm -hmm. We might as well call it brain right now because mm -hmm. we're still having a, you know, not too transcendental of a psychological discussion. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's also the ego, which I'd eliminate that vocabulary and use the subject. And then there's this unconscious, conscious relation in which things stand separate. 
and, and need to be brought together in some way or another. So the, the Lacanian perspective on the divisions within the subject would be that the subject is divided conditionally within itself, meaning that for the subject to exist, he needs to be split. And this is his idea of the split subject, mm-hmm. that he never really knows what is going on. Uh, that the only way that he knows what's going on is by way of understanding how his signifiers relate to the unconscious. And so this would be the, the amalgamation that you're talking about. The idea is that in Lacanian psychoanalysis is that instead of focusing on superficial things like what is this person's persona, what is their ego like, etc., you go ahead and directly prod at the unconscious and you figure out which words are more pertinent to the subject. These are called the dominant signifiers. So I think just by finding the fears, fantasies, mm-hmm. and, and psychical realities that mm-hmm. the subject is continuously dealing with by way of understanding the words and his words and how he uses them Mm -hmm. is the most effective way of going into the unconscious and unifying what has to be unified which is not necessarily a subject in itself it's the unconscious the the unconscious is is what needs to be unified so Jung divides the unconscious into personal unconscious and collective unconscious right so personal unconscious is basically archetypes that are unique to you as an individual and collective unconscious are archetypes that are fundamental to all of the society but these overlap yeah yeah and together they are the vast unconscious i don't i as i had it understood I, i don't think the distinction is between the type of archetypes. Mm-hmm. I thought that the distinction was simply two different topi, two different spaces for the unconscious to enact itself. Yeah, it's two different it's two different it's, it's individuality and then it's existence within a community. So it's definitely two different senses or two different realizations of being. Okay, but two different kinds it's two different kinds yeah it's two yeah. two spaces uh, two uh, of, of how mind yeah comes i mean to you life. can definitely put it in spatial terms topos yeah the, you can use the uh, greek um so what so, do you think is the significance of the unconscious within jungian psychology okay so first of all i'm i'm going to approach it from the way that I know Jung, which is that the difference between the collective and the personal unconscious is, yes, a matter of being. It's ontological. It's an ontological difference. But archetypes exist, all archetypes exist in the same ontology. Um, The rest is a matter of autobiographical history versus world history, which don't necessarily coincide. But Mm-hmm. archetypes still exist irregularly or indistinctly from each other so 
I would say that the Jungian collective unconscious, which is supposed to be a space in being that is different from the subject's body vessel, mind-body, mind-brain interface that is the psyche, quote-unquote, is not how Jung deems to call it a, a field of ideas that have some degree of interconnectivity intersubjectively. I don't necessarily believe that. Although it's, it's a, a claim that would help explain a lot of things, such as synchronicities and things like that. Even things like, like UFOs, where the substance of reality is neither material nor psychical. It's, it's not neither physical nor psychical. It's it extraterrestrial. Too. It's not, okay, but <laughs> no, not necessarily. <laughs> but because it, it's foreign. It's not. It's not foreign either. It's it's foreign to the dynamics of this particular universe. No, no, no. The the whole point here is that or, both universes are in mm-hmm. union. So, once again, coincidentia at oppositorum. We are heavily intimate with the, these two realities or with whichever foreign reality there is no no foreign reality the, the, the one that might be construed as such but that's denying mind. that there are parallel universes that doesn't matter right now to this discussion we're discussing matter and, and mind so no but it definitely does align with foreign territory or foreign dimensions I don't know I'd still consider it all part of mind and the universe so I'm equally as intimate to a parallel timeline that I'm not physically in contact with as the one I'm in right now because all is mine. This is a, I think, an even more radical perspective than Jungian's psychophysicalism, which is what I was about to clarify. So but re- it could re- be a mental reality, phenomenon. The world is a psychosocial substance. Okay. So that's why I mentioned the example of aliens or, or UFOs. Mm-hmm. They're not necessarily real. They might just be that the human mind is so potent that somehow these images appear as hallucinations, as real, true hallucinations for many people. And there is an overwhelming amount of anecdotal evidence of people getting abducted by aliens and having encounters with them. This is strange. This is data that cannot be ignored. It's everywhere, right? Yeah. I don't. I, I'm not even ha- placing a stance on whether aliens exist or not. I don't know. My claim. But it is, is would, confirmed by the Pentagon that okay. aerial alien technology. Yeah, but, but they might be wrong. So uh, they might be wrong. We we don't know. So, but I, I'm I'm comfortable in the Jungian position of saying that the explanation for UFOs might be that simply that's just how potent the human mind and intersubjective human mind is. I'm I, I'd be fine with that. Where I don't want to go with Jung is to believe that while being an idealist in the sense of metaphysical idealism, it's a position that I feel relatively comfortable with, I don't necessarily feel comfortable with the belief that archetypes exist as inter-historical, trans-geographical realities, because I would associate it more with an evolutionary biology argument. And, and I'd be more materialistic for the explanation of archetypes in the sense that I, I'm 
also materialistic for the explanation of signifiers, which would be the Freudian position. That signifiers are neurons in the brain uh, that get irritated or not, and that is what determines memory traces. So in, we can make a comparison between signifiers and archetypes quite easily. There was what do you think about... <laughs> Wait, I'm literally not done clarifying this. Okay, dude. But, but like, don't fucking interrupt me. What do you think about archetypal psychology? But like Hillman's... Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, archetypal I was psychology. Gonna get there. Okay. So, I, we need to remember Freud. This is what we learned from Lacan. Mm -hmm. But we cannot deny Jung's genius. This is also very true. So... If we can compatibilize Jung and Freudian psychoanalysis to some degree, I would say it has to take place in the way that we look at language and representation. So we would have to take an epistemological stance on it rather than an ontological one, which is what happens very often in Jung, uh, which is believing that the human mind is the same as the external supposed larger mind which is something that I'm not necessarily in agreement with, although I do play with the idea that we are in fact in a massive mind and that matter is not matter or necessarily real, although it is reality. That's a point for, for another conversation. So in regards to signifiers and archetypes, we can think of signifiers having a bias of only occurring in speech. And this is the difference that, that I think Jungian psychology has in relation to Freudian, Lacanian psychology, which is that it depends on the imagination a lot more. And it depends on the inner images and inner visions of the subject much more than, than Lacan. Yeah, Lacan or, is more linguistic. It is purely linguistic. It, 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 in fact, it, in Lacanian epistemology, there's a difference between symbolic and imaginary knowledge meaning that any knowledge that arises in your imagination is invalid, which is something that Jung would, of course, rebel against. So I, I think that we can approach this in, in the sense of free association. What happens in psychoanalysis when you sit down and you speak about your problems if you're doing a, an, orthodox, an orthodox Freudian um, approach or a Lacanian approach is that you sit down and you oblige yourself to enter into a stream of consciousness in which you're just connecting ideas based on whatever arises in your mind's eye or in your feeling or in your subtle thought patterns. So, so the way that this gets manifested is into speech. So we can think about the unconscious unfolding outwards as speech. However, it is not in direct representations of the unconscious, it is always refracted. On the other hand, and this is something that I actually go into depth in my upcoming book, The Unknown's Apprehension, A Poetology, in which I discuss heavily what Rambaud means by the unknown in his Letters of the Seer, and its both uh, philosophical implications and psychological therapeutic offshoots. I, I mentioned the union between the word with a capital W and the image with a capital I. You can understand the word as anything that has to do with linguistic language, 
that is spoken, written, read, versus the image that is anything that has to do with a pure semantic of aesthetics containing meaning within themselves. So an aesthetic semiotic. And this is what structures Jung's thought precisely. No, I think we did discuss most of that. So, no, 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 but I'm not done. You think yeah. that, I'm, that I'm done speaking, oh, but no. I'm not. No, I'm not saying that. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> what type of chemistry do we have? What type of synergy as podcasters do we have? I don't understand I'm it. I feel like I'm just here as your whore professor. <laughs> and you just make, make him speak. You know? The aesthetic semiotic of Jung is precisely the poetic of images in themselves. It is a study of how images arise and their connections to yourself through the way that they've been seen externally and the way that symbols have been used historically. Jung is highly multicultural. He believes in the union of the human by way of culture, meaning that evolutionary biology always has an extrapolation outside into the world, which is replicable from culture to culture. Collective unconscious. Right. This is the fascinating side. I don't like using the word collective unconscious because it's, it's, it's giving an onticity to intersubjective realities rather than limiting it to the imaginary, which, which is where I would agree with Lacan. However, we can make a comparison and we can say that we, we should be using our inner images for psychotherapeutic purposes in the same way that we use speech. This is the, the, I think, where Lacan to some extent goes wrong, but only because he is a radical pragmatist. He doesn't care of anything apart from speech since speech is already such a wonderful tool to indicate signifiers of the unconscious. Unknown signifiers. True. So these signifiers, which if you were to compare with Jungian psychology, you can say archetypes that come from these collective, you know, intersubjective understanding of reality, also get projected in your dreams. And so one of the main components of Jungian psychoanalysis is also dream interpretation, Hmm. which comes from the Freudian dream interpretation because Freudian dream interpretation is more empirical it's more biological based at least the research part of it and Jungian is more based on the culture on the mythologies all those you know collective archetypes so what do you find fascinating within the dream work or even the shadow work within Jungian psychoanalysis okay well shadow work is a is a very good point because there's there's no exact comparison between it Freud. The equivalence in Freud would be the removal of the imaginary father or you know the archetypal saving your father from the depths of the whale's belly, all of these things. It's always related to the name of the father. But in, in Jung it becomes a highly personal trajectory of integrating all of your sides and not only that but except entering a species of moral relativism in which you change your perspective of the world in regards to how good and evil interact between themselves. So it's highly Nietzschean. 
Yeah, which he's is, inspired by Nietzsche. Yes, he was a reader of, of Nietzsche. In fact, he has lectures on the books of Zarathustra, the psychology of it, which is brilliant. Nevertheless, in the comparison between Freud and Jung, which we can use Freud and Lacan interchangeably, is that if for Lacan, signifiers are visible by way of speech, for Jung, signifiers are visible by way of the imagination. Notice how I'm not using the word archetype here, but it's because of its connotations with beliefs in, in how the human mind works collectively, which I don't necessarily agree with. So there is, however, hope for a Freudian approach to images. And this has to be done, however, through the self-analytic lens, because of course the analyst cannot look into your images and and notice how, you know, in hypnagogia certain metaphors merge into each other, representing people of your past. Although this can be done through dreams, to to a higher extent, maybe depending on how well you memorize your active imaginations or not. I think that if you were to successfully imagine and be able to recall those imaginations in a in a psychoanalytically oriented way in order to in the in, in the space of therapy to regurgitate it back out for it to be analyzed you, you still wouldn't be treating with the archetype because the archetype is imaginal you're still treating with speech this is the issue so the problem for Lacan would be that it might result in the analysis to be excessively convoluted because you have to access images now not only as uh, as this uncertain epistemology but also with an added layer of, of distortion which is speech, which is chatter that talks through us so there is a lot of epistemic uncertainty in, in a Jungian approach from a Lacanian standpoint which has to happen through speech and analysis. And, you know, this is the, the brilliance of Lacan. He's, he's very keen on exactitude in, in the clinic. So archetypes are a little bit ambigu ambiguous and images too. However, I do believe that if speech is free association, then active imagination or or images are active associate or active imagination. So I'm making the parallel here between free association and active imagination as essentially the same thing. The distinction being that the latter is within the subject and hence inaccessible to the analyst that is outside. So the analyst cannot see the inner images, and this is a pity, because if he could, he might be able to analyze his patient even better than with speech, with words. But archetypes are ambiguous only at a personal level, because archetypes have a fundamental truth to them. Yes. And so what is ambiguous is your personal relation to that archetype. And it is only ambiguous for the moment it is ambiguous, because like, you could certainly have an understanding of their ambiguity and be able to identify that personal reference point in, within the archetype. So yeah, it is ambiguous, but it's not that 
it's only ambiguous momentarily. I think it's it's. Oh, it's, it's a probability. Yeah, it is. I mean, if we believe in archetypes having some degree of truth value to them, which are located. Which is through the symbolic. History. Yeah, so it's located in history. Yeah. In mythology and in, in, in symbols and and dictionary symbols. You could say that it's the Lacanian signified. Yes, to some extent, but like even in Lacanian thought, the difference between signifier and signified is dissolved. So, the reason. So it's a sign. It's it's a signifier only. So the sign gets. The complexity of the sign, the dichotomy of the sign of the signifier and signifier, gets reduced to one thing, which is the signifier, which is the no truth, no knowledge, essentially. Interesting. Yeah. So, that that is the condition of the subject. He is obliged to enjoy himself while knowing little. What do you think about synchronicity? So, I mean, this is a very challenging. Psychological question and also philosophical. So maybe we can try explaining it first, right? Okay, so I'll give an example. So imagine that I have to pay someone. I have a a debt in mind um, mm-hmm. for a pet that they just bought me recently because I didn't okay. have enough money to buy this mouse that I found very cute in the pet store. So. Uh, Imagine uh, I'm walking around the street, minding my own business, still with this in the back of my head, but not really contemplating it. And suddenly a mouse appears dead in front of me. This would be synchronous because of needing to pay this person for the mouse, still having, not having done it, etc. However, this is what in common psychology is called a delusion of reference or a delusion of grandeur schizophrenia, psychosis, all of these psychopathologies that indicate that there is some degree of conflation between the symbolic and the real. So, synchronicity is in a very strange position. It is highly psychopathological in itself, if we're looking at it from a common sense lens. However, everyone will say that they encounter synchronicities in their lives. Is this simple statistics? Or does this mean that the individual unconscious gets unfolded outwards onto the larger unconscious, which is the world? Mm -hmm. This is the qualm of the problem of synchronicity. Yeah, there is a lot of arguments from the quantum mechanics side that within quantum mechanics, there's no existence of synchronicity at all due to the observer's bias. So, the let's reflect on the double slit experiment. Somehow, okay. a photon can behave sometimes as a particle and other times as a wave. Mm-hmm. This means that there is an uncertainty of whether something is behaving as we expect it to behave. And more than anything, that upon measuring this thing, that we're creating the measurement that we are observing. Yeah, it's upon the Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Okay, so what does this say about synchronicity? 
Like the uncertainty principle? Yeah, the, the fact that a photon can be both and not. Because it's again like two, two synchronous events could be happening, but also not happening at the same time. Okay. So, right, this is similar to the ontological claim of Jung, which is that reality is psychophysical rather than only physical or only psychological or a mix of the two in a Cartesian way. The idea is that, I mean, the, the question here is to some degree of truth, you know. That's it's why material dualism. Not in the case of Jung. But at a conscious level, like... He, mer he merges the two. You know, he's saying that whatever material reality is, is also imbued with each subject's personal unconscious, and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So it's not a dualism. It is a, it's a strange hybrid between materialism and idealism, which leads to paradoxes such as, is this synchronous event true or not? Is it really a synchronicity? Or is it a mere coincidence that is having an impact on me because my unconscious is in fact somewhere in me? Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, what about mandalas? Hmm? Like the mandalas. Yeah. yeah. Like, okay, so active imagination, right? Hmm. So what is active imagination? It is an exercise where you actively imagine you just let your inner images float to the surface of your mind's eye that's all that active imagination is it's the same thing as letting your words float to the surface of your mouth and tongue there's mm -hmm. no difference so Jung used to actively imagine every day and so he would also like go out and like put stones in a in a pattern like one upon other like just making some hill out of it or something and and he would do it every day and he would say that it's an exercise for active imagination interesting for probably for semantic memory processing probably yeah if if he had the occurrence already noted mm -hmm. then in the moment of that uh, memory process coming out mm -hmm. he would also have the opportunity to populate that image upon recognizing it mm -hmm. so mandalas are you know important because and not important but they could they could be used as an exercise to project your persona and your anima or animus onto a diametrical like a diagram or a or an image or a creation and so that's what Jung used to do he used to draw so you know he would wake up every day and open his notebook and take a pen and start making whatever comes to your mind but in a, it would end up being a mandala, but the idea is to let your consciousness flow free. That's called automatic surrealism. Yeah. But in, in oriented towards some degree of structure. And so 
that's how you would get all these mandalas so there would be the creative amalgamation of your persona and your animal animus okay yeah i mean i see the value mm -hmm. but to what extent can a poem writer reach the same degree of ecstatic unfolding of inner images onto either you know image metaphors or in the case of an artist into actual perceptual images made out of color and lines you know i think that yes there's a lot of value in the mandala but what if you know jung were a therapy directed towards artists maybe, so, that, maybe that's what it is you know at the end of the day it's because it depends so much on creativity that's why mandala is an exercise though because it's an exercise then it's a part of individuation it's part of it active imagination is the precursor to these drives that make you want to draw the mandala and then the mandala itself is an active exercise towards individuation mm -hmm. i agree the, the question of self-analysis is very important here because to what extent do you or not have a blind eye that cannot see all the parts of the psyche that you need to see in order to integrate them